0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Cybercognition Podcast, a show about artificial intelligence and how it is transforming the world around us with your biological, sentient, and mostly rational human host, Hutch. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Everybody to another episode of the Cyber Cognition podcast. Uh, this will be our final episode for the year, and this one's going to be a little bit different than some of the other episodes that we do. And really focusing today on just a, a handful announcement or of announcements that are uh, bringing us into the new year. Uh, so, got some really exciting news, uh, several different areas. Uh, First and foremost, the Cybercognition podcast is getting an upgrade. So uh, we, uh, of course, uh, this first year has really been kind of playing around with different formats, kind of figuring out what works for this podcast, what the audience enjoys, um, and, and various different ways that we want to deliver. And so we, you've likely noticed that we've had uh, different approaches over various different episodes, but uh, recently have certainly shifted more in the direction of a conversational approach rather than some of the monologues that we did in earlier episodes. And one episode in particular, I uh, enjoyed extremely well. Uh, I feel like this person aligns very well with both myself as well as the, the podcast itself in terms of looking at future technology trends, the risks associated with those and uh, kind of a, a mixture of uh, excitement and reservation around that emerging technology. So, uh, with that had some, some conversations with, uh, so actually our last episode was with, uh, Noh and, uh, have had some conversations since with him and he will be coming on as a permanent co-host of the cyber cognition podcast. So extremely excited to have him on board. Um, I, I would encourage you if you, you didn't hear it, um, check out the, the previous episode. We did have a really interesting conversation on the future of transhumanism and uh some of the other emerging technology trends uh but that being said um lynn tell us uh, and the audience a little bit about yourself
2: well first of all hutch thank you very much uh i had an absolute blast you know when i was on here with you a, you know a couple of weeks ago and when you reached out the fit especially with the the, the direction that the podcast that you're taking ai futurist I mean, that's really right up my alley. And, and as you said, if I, I highly recommend anybody that you know missed the episode that I had recorded, go ahead if you want to get a little bit more background. But I am one of the world's most well-recognized transhumans. I have multiple subdermal technology implants in my body, that, and the the direction that I plan on going. I, I, I plan on being completely robotic by the time, you know, you know, my life ends. I, I, I want to be like Futurama. I just want to be the head in, in the glass that, you know, just talks to people.
1: Love it. Um, well, yeah, so, so obviously, I mean, there's, there's few people that are, have share that, that same level of them enthusiasm and embrace technology to the extent that you do. So I I, I can't think of a better person to talk about kind of forward-looking what's over the horizon. Um, I I, I think uh, you you may be a a little bit more of an early adopter than some of us who are are probably a little bit more scared or squeamish to to be at that bleeding edge to the extent that you are. But, um,
2: you know, and that's the thing. You know, the fact that we're already here. You know, and, and you've been talking about it, you know, ever since I met you years ago, you know, around the LLMs, AI, generative chat models, and just the future of tech from a, almost like a software and interface perspective. Whereas I've been looking at it from a different direction, but we're both going in the exact same direction. So with both of our backgrounds in security, mine a little bit, probably in a, a little bit darker places than yours. <laughs> But I think between the two of us, I think we have, you know, a really good framework to help try and bring a lot of this futuristic type of tech and, and, you know, concepts into today's conversation so that we can actually be in a position where we can be safe moving into this future. And at least if not safe, not get hit with a sucker punch, not knowing it's coming.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree. I think that one of the big challenges coming forward is just how fast things are moving now. And uh, I, I think having, the, if nothing else, just kind of rational discussion that is informed by a good context of understanding what those technology trends are is going to be extremely useful. So um mm-hmm. definitely excited, looking forward to the, the conversations going into the new year uh, and can't wait to kick this thing off.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and if I could take this uh, opportunity, you know, I can't think of a better place to to drop a little bit more of a tidbit teaser about some of the stuff that's coming up with me than you know my first episode here with you uh I had put out on LinkedIn a little while ago a little teaser that I had entered into a project with Wiley press so just like you uh you know i when I grow up i wanna be like you Hutch. i wanna be you know a successful author and you know award winning author and author and we'll talk about that before we get done here but uh yeah, I am basically going to be putting out a book around the transhumanism hacker concept. Uh, we're still kicking around different title ideas, but we're shooting for a release date probably sometime around August of 2024. And uh, it's my hopes that, you know, through this op- you know opportunity with Wiley, I kind of like w- what you just said, man. You know, the future's coming, whether you, you're ready for it or not. So I've been saying for years, how do you stop attacks if you don't even know they exist? So I'm going to put it all in paper and people will get to see what it's like to actually be a transhuman from my perspective.
1: Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. Um, that is going to be a, a fantastic read. And uh, not to mention, I, I think you have a, a unique perspective that there are very few people in the world that can uh, uh, kind of see the future of technology and through the same lens that you do. So I uh, can't wait to.
2: You know, to see what you come up with. It, it's really un, an interesting feeling to actually be able to physically touch digital technology.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um,
2: so, But I am extremely excited. I also wanted to just take a, a moment and thank ITSP for you know the welcome that I got from them. And I can't wait to see what kind of conversations we have moving forward. You know, the possibilities are absolutely endless. Yep, yeah, that
1: and that's another good thing to point out uh, for anybody that uh, maybe isn't currently following Marco's podcast, uh, Redefining Society. He did a, a really entertaining kind of look into the next year of twenty twenty four, making predictions about generative AI. Uh, it was a, a panel that uh, myself and Lynn got to join, as well as uh, several other kind of distinguished professionals in different areas uh, working with artificial intelligence. So uh, made for some really interesting conversations. So definitely worth looking up that episode. Uh, again, that's redefining society.
2: Yeah, that was, that was actually a lot of fun. And, and, you know, that takes us right up to where we can, you know, segue right into this amazing new book that just came out, the language of deception. <laughs> you know, if if anybody hasn't seen this yet, I highly, highly recommend this book. I, I'd love to tell you that I, am, you know, the minute I got it, I sat down and I couldn't put it down. And the truth is, it is that kind of a read, but the problem is, is I have a very, very busy life. But, you know, this is amazing. And right off the bat, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't this come out as like one of the number one books on Amazon as far as artificial intelligence at release?
1: Yeah, the the release has been fantastic, and the, and the reception and the support from the community. So I released the book last week, and it uh, immediately on new release was the number one new release in the category of artificial intelligence. Uh, has consistently been in the the top ten of all artificial intelligence, and um, pretty high up there within the the computer hacking and internet privacy categories as well. So. Um doing exceptionally well. Um I'm it, it's still obviously just starting to get in the hands of people. So uh the reviews are still pretty light. So for anybody that has uh seen it yet or, or got your hands on it, um definitely leave me a review. I'd love to have honest feedback from anybody that uh that cracks the book open. But um really excited to finally it's it's been a, a year long journey. Um I, I know a journey that you're now, as you just mentioned, uh, just starting. So uh when you put that much time into something and that much effort into something uh it it's really exciting to see the end of that journey. So thrilled to get this this book out um and uh looking forward to what's next. Um I I guess with that um I, I obviously we 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 did want to talk a little bit about the book too um I, I think it'd be interesting kind of to give everybody uh, a little bit of insight into the background on that book, because what I think of course uh, uh it, most people probably wouldn't think it but because artificial intelligence really has only been buzzing significantly for the the past year or so, and uh the book itself really is a story that goes back almost twenty years, so uh i It goes back to the the year 2004, which was the year that I was a senior in high school. It uh, also was the year that Google released their new flagship service, Gmail. And so at the time, Gmail was still invite only. You had to know somebody who knew somebody in Silicon Valley in order to get that invite code and have access to early access to the platform. And so as a tech enthusiast teenager in high school uh, of course i was bragging about the fact that i had access to gmail to absolutely anybody that would listen and i was also dating a girl at the time who was uh, a bit of the crazy eccentric type and uh was at a party with her one night and she started having a conversation with me about uh all of the different pets that she had growing up and of course I. Uh, took this stroll with her down memory lane. Um, yeah, and
2: Yep,
1: yeah, exactly. And, and kind of told her about some of the pets that I had had growing up. I didn't think twice about the conversation. And the next day I go to log into my Gmail account and sure enough, I can no longer log into my account. This girl, it, it took me a little bit to piece together what had happened, but this girl had managed hey, to. So.
2: engineering.
1: It, I was, I was, a, and what's, what's fascinating is of course, this is, this, was when Google wasn't or Gmail wasn't even publicly available. So there is a very real possible argument for the possibility that I may have been the first person to have his account compromised. You were the very on Gmail,
2: first. <laughs> Gmail
1: compromised. Oh
2: my god! I was,
1: I was setting the trend. Um, but so I, w- what's interesting is uh, I wasn't, I wasn't ignorant of hacking culture at the time. I was already. Uh, had already done quite a bit of scripting and coding, had done some system exploitation, but I guess it had never really occurred to me that in absence of any kind of technical vulnerability, that I could be that vulnerability. And so I think it was that point where I got really interested in the topic of social engineering and manipulating people uh, as a potential means to an end. Uh, but what I did realize almost immediately is that unlike other types of hacking, there is a, a specific challenge related to social engineering. While it is by far the most effective way to achieve a particular goal, it also is unlike other forms of hacking, it's, it's not scalable or not easily scalable. So other things can be scripted out. They can be automated. They can be done thousands of times a second. With social engineering, you have to invest the time. You have to establish rapport with your potential victim. You have to build that level of trust and then use that trust in order to exploit them. And that is a very difficult thing to scale. So it was, it was about a decade later that I got this idea of what if it would be possible to scale that type of attack, to automate that kind of attack. And this was in the very early stages of kind of chat-based conversational artificial intelligence.
2: If we can break there for just a second. For sure. This- before, way, well, before you know the LLMs that we are currently familiar with, you know. So at this point, the concept of machine learning and artificial intelligence was extremely in its infancy. You know. Oh
1: yeah, it was bad.
2: It, it conceptualized basic algorithms, and you even at that point were able to look at what was available and project into the future and see the potential with this. I mean, how were you able to look? You know, and it's easy to see today when we look at things like BARD or Chat GPT, where you can just be like, you know, how do I create a piece of malware? But what I'm trying to say is back in those times, you know, we weren't dealing with fully completed systems, you know, with, with a really good UI. How did you look at what was available in its infancy and see that potential based on what was available? Because like you said, you know, at that point, you were basically dealing with very rudimentary type uh, of search queries. It didn't have the ability for the neural net that we have today. How did you look at this little lump of tech and go, this little blob is one day going to be able to do the type of scaling and be able to deal with the idiosyncrasies of a conversation? I mean, what was it about that that gave you that forced thought? So I, I stumbled
1: upon a, and this has been around for a while, but there was a an entire geek subculture community uh, called Personality Forge. And it, it is actually, again, it's still around. It's by today's AI standard, it's extremely primitive and, and painful to even look at. But uh, it, what it was, was it was a system that allowed people to create rule-based conversational systems and there was quite a few different features in there. You could add different kinds of randomness. You could um, add variability in various different ways to that conversation. And it was an entire community of people that, uh, to a large extent, were trying to Beat the Turing test, trying to make something that was coded to seem as human and authentic as possible. And of course, in the absence of anything like our modern large language model capabilities, generally that even if you were able to pass the Turing test, so to speak, it was usually for a very short period of time. Something could create an illusion of intelligence for uh, maybe a conversation that lasted between five and ten exchanges of text but after that it, something would go off the wires or off the rails and it'd be like okay i'm very obviously talking to a bot All
2: so belong to us
1: <laughs> yep exactly so I, I going back to kind of that experience that i had had uh, uh i i started kind of replaying that in my head and why didn't I have any red flags go up whenever she was talking to me about and the, the, the simple reason was because I was in a dating relationship. I was in a, a context where I was trying to get to know someone and I knew that they were trying to get to know me. So it made me think maybe that is the best possible context for trying to compromise people's security questions, which of course, 10 years ago, there still wasn't a whole lot of MFA or multi factor authentication around. So a lot of times that's all you needed was the answers to those questions to get access to someone's accounts. And so I actually uh, I built an entire chat bot infrastructure, and the code for this is still on GitHub. Admittedly, not well commented, but um, it uh, basically was an entire infrastructure for deploying an entire botnet on two freely available dating websites at the time: OKCupid and Plenty of Fish. And what it did was these bots would go out, and it would it would use actual bots from Personality Forge to automatically start interacting with people on these sites and then would just randomly inject recovery questions into those conversations at a a random interval. And what I found was, in and and again, to your point, the the AI was very obviously not human when you interacted with it, at least from my perspective. But surprisingly, even back then, about 5% of the time, people would fall for this and I chalk it up to stupidity or I I think probably more so just a genuine desire for, for people to connect with other people, Uh, desperation or, or whatever you want to call it, but
2: psychology uh, of social engineering. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and to that point, I I love the examples that you put in the back of the book as far as like trying to get, you know, do not take no for an answer, you know, And, and the examples you showed it, you know, And the thing that I find absolutely terrifying, and this is nothing that you and I haven't really talked about before, is the fact that the we are using our native language to actually interface to a computer, which is using that language and then returning it back to us. Up until now, I mean, everything that we've done has been on a keyboard, which is going to go back to an ASCII character that goes right back to a bit value. We now have to take into consideration the nuances of language. And when you look at the amount of data that these LLMs have, they know more ways of trying to... Uh, take a look at the, the panel we were on yesterday. You know, AI is now better than an actual lawyer, Not just because it can pass the bar, but it, it you know, the funny... It, Using that analogy, I heard something, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote my where I got it from. Uh, you know, I don't know if you ever met Evan Litwack. He's uh, one of the prime the uh, principals for uh, that works at CyberArk. But he said lawyers are nothing more than attack librarians. <laughs> I like it. But but think about that for a minute. What does a lawyer do? They go research case history. They find you know examples that you know prove their arguments. You know, so as a human being, we are going to always be limited to what we can remember. If you take the entire law library and make it available to an LLM, of course, they're going to be better than us. So what happens, you know, and to your point, you know, back in the, the day when you were making these originally, this was very rudimentary. We're now at a point where the LLMs can actually successfully imitate and circumvent any type of obvious types of grammatical errors that would lead to detection of, you know, a non-human entity. Yep.
1: Yeah, what was interesting, I, there was a, uh, an MIT article where they were, and it was back in 2017, which ironically was the year that Google published the transformer architecture, which was used for all these large language models, but obviously wasn't deployed in anywhere near the capacity that it is now. Uh, but in this uh, MIT journal, the it was basically how to know whether you're interacting with a bot line, and it kind of pointed to to some of those things like grammatical errors or um, some of the the traditional Nigerian prince red flags that you would see. Uh, but but it pointed out that bots are getting better; those aren't always going to be the case with systems. But it basically said that the one way that you can tell is kind of its inability to carry on a rational conversation for any period or sustainable period of time. And that's changed. I mean, that was, and I, I said it's ironic, but that was the year that the Transformer architecture came out, because that was kind of the, the reason why everything could have been away from that. But now, I mean, you're, you interact with somebody online, it's relatively impossible to know one way or another whether there is a human at the other end or if it is
2: completely it, the bots can now and the LLMs can actually even take into consideration what we're using as slang you know, yeah. TY, thank you WTF you know, it understands this you know, so I think one thing you know, especially around your book that I think with, you know and i'm hoping that i as i finish the read it, you're going to get more into this and if if you would like to comment on it i think that would be great you know we've talked ad nauseum you and i in terms of deep fakes ai how all of this is playing in what do we do i mean we we have a problem you know you can't tell the difference between a bot i can't tell the difference between a bot i 9 times out of 10 you can't tell the difference between a deep fake so Where does this, as people, security professionals, and even just the common average man, how do we stay safe in this new world with these new technologies that are being implemented in so many areas of our lives? You know, Microsoft is building BARD into the OS and the browsers now. Google is looking into adding AI into the search engines. So, even if you don't think you're dealing with AI, it's being added to a lot of the, the software and the applications that we're using. So, yeah, how do we maintain our safety?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the amount of challenges that are coming at us at a fast rate of speed is going to be, uh, I think, nearly insurmountable. I think, obviously, one of the ways that we combat this, um, well, I guess you, you really need to take it from a couple different perspectives. Because I I think there are certain things that individuals can do to try to make themselves more resilient. There's also the question of organizations. How do you protect your organization's infrastructure and uh, your personnel? And then I think even more challenging than both of those is at a macro societal level, there are huge risks that if we as a society don't get on the same page about, it's going to be really hard to tackle these. And so I, I think The individual one is probably the easiest, but it also requires personal accountability. And that is that I I think individually, we need to stay informed and aware of what capabilities are out there and and just have a a general mindfulness of the fact that there are people that are going to use these capabilities, not always with the best intentions in mind and remaining vigilant in that regard.
2: Uh, Unfortunately, I, I... to that point, you know the legislation just passed in the in Europe yesterday or the day before yesterday around AI. Yep. Do you see this actually doing anything? I mean, as, when you look at, it may help for those large LLMs, but the fact that now we see a lot of small companies spinning up their own, you know, language models and using their own data sets, how is this? legislation actually going to help rein in when anybody can write their own algorithm And well, do you yeah, see any yeah. type of legislation coming here to the u.s and having any type of actual teeth here
1: so i haven't had a chance to fully dig into the the new european legislation my understanding from what i've heard uh is that it's takes into account various different characteristics of models to classify them into different risk categories. And based on the category something falls into determines what level of oversight uh, is placed on the operations of that model. And I I, honestly, I I, I like the precedent. I like the fact that there is at least initiative that's being taken that these conversations are being had. Uh, My understanding is that it's very subject to interpretation and pretty vague, which unfortunately any time in, in legislation and regulation makes it extremely hard to enforce anything. And I think unfortunately there is uh, an inherent problem with meaningful regulation around this, and that is the the typical prisoner's dilemma, especially when you consider that in many ways artificial intelligence is becoming the new arms race. It is generally well understood by leaders of the world that AI is going to be the deciding factor in global supremacy going forward. And because of that, there is the consistent pushback, whether valid or not, but it's going to be a point that's consistently made of if we regulate and the other guys don't, we're essentially shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak, We're we're making it to where we can't possibly retain global supremacy.
2: We can't even compete uh, on the same same field.
1: Exactly, and so I I think that unfortunately there is a need to all get on the same page globally. But the hurdles that are required in order to get there, to get to meaningful regulation that isn't negatively impactful to our society, to Western free democratic culture as a whole, um, I think are. Extremely challenging problems, and and I like that there are conversations going on. I'm hopeful that we, as humanity, can get to a point where we can solve some of the bigger risks that are larger than just a single nation state. Um, I I think there are serious questions around alignment. I think there are. Uh, I one of the challenges with this thing is we we don't know how far this thing can potentially go. We're at the very beginning of what is potentially an exponential curve in machine intelligence. We already know that systems like GPT-4, to your point, smarter than a lawyer, can pass the bar exam, can it is consistently scoring in the top 99 percentile of human beings in terms of MENSA-level IQ tests. And... That begs the question, if we continue to invest in this technology, we continue to make these neural networks larger and larger, allow them to make more and more complex logical connections about the ideas that are described within the language that we're feeding them, how soon do we hit a point where we aren't just dealing with intelligence that's comparable to human level but we hit this point of superintelligence, something that's far beyond what we can even comprehend whenever it is arriving at a conclusion, or especially in the case of when we're we're making agent-based systems, making actual decisions. And so I think there there is that very serious alignment problem, but if and unfortunately I think cart before the horse we really should ideally in a perfect world we would want to solve that alignment problem before we continue to make these things bigger and bigger but of course free market capitalism is not going to happen.
2: Yeah, it's not going to happen you know so my fear cuz cuz my understanding of the, the legislation is essentially the same as yours and my concern is, is this is going to be almost viewed like GDPR was in the beginning, where it will not matter until somebody actually falls victim and there are consequences to pay, you know?
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that's, that's regulation. A lot of times plane, enough planes have to fall out of the sky people have to get in car accidents before regulation is taken seriously. And that's unfortunate, but And unfortunately, in this case, it it may be a situation where the the stakes are much higher in terms of the incidents.
2: Dealing with a situation that we're used to, you know, the idea of a a leaked database or, you know, somebody misconfiguring a, a WAF that allows access to exposed data. This we're used to. The concepts of where an LLM could go, you know. We don't even know. I mean, it's creating polymorphic malware. It's creating new attack code that as human offensive people, we've never come up with. So I think that in my opinion, I I agree with everything that you've said, but unfortunately, I I think we're going to have to wait and somebody is going to have to be the victim somebody is going to have to be you know pulled out on the carpet before the legislation actually has teeth and people will actually start to cons- take what's written beyond the fact that they're words and it's a regulation and we're just checking a box.
1: Yep, and and you're probably right and I think in that case uh where there is potential value in the book is not uh it does acknowledge kind of those challenges with global regulation and with progress in that regard but then there is the question of well in the absence of any well enforced global regulations we can at least do what we can to make sure that i'm not the reason that that re- global regulation does move forward at some point or my organization is not the reason so um
2: based on I, your I, based on your experience here with the technology in, in the states do you see the potential for the legislation being different as it gets, because I know that Congress here has been, they've been talking about legislation around AI for since, since the COVID lockdown. I remember, you know, there were things, you know, Congress is taking up, is AI safe? And then if you think about it for about nine months, there was everything on the news was about generative chat models and bias and everything else. And I don't want to necessarily get into that part. But the way that it's AI is looked at politically, I think you brought up a very good point. From a political perspective, this is dealing into the future of the technology arms race. But just in general, where do you see that go?
1: Unfortunately, I am am a little bit pessimistic in my regard of seeing meaningful legislation here in the I I think that the way that our two party system operates and especially in the context of so many different factors right now that are increasingly polarizing society i think we're we're increasingly seeing the way that the united states government functions becoming less and less functional it's it's extremely difficult to get anything done because you you unlike you go back 20 30 years and and people would walk across the aisle so to speak they would there would be bipartisan partnerships and discussions, and unfortunately, I, I think that the technology era has been a large contributing factor to fuller or further polarizing our society, to uh, pushing people to opposite extremes. And in truth, I, I think that most people most people are well intended. I, I think that uh, generally, on the the right side of the spectrum, you have kind of uh, an emphasis on rational thinking and uh, pragmatism on the left side. You have idealism and making sure that we're doing the right thing. And I think that there's value to both of those perspectives. And I think that they're very important to a functional society. And being able to find a middle ground between those is critical to progress. But I I feel like increasingly we are hitting a deadlocked situation where. And I think largely what I would expect is probably more on the progressive side, there being interest to move forward with regulation on this, where I think that, uh, the more conservative perspective is going to be unfortunately champion, championing, championing that prisoner's dilemma perspective of if we slow our industry down, China wins. And, and I think there's, valid discussions to be had on both of those perspectives as well. So,
2: um, I a crazy thought in here. And are you familiar with a, a, a person by the name of FM 2030? I'm not FM 2030 was one of the thought Julian Huxley was the, person that came up with the original term of transhumanism, but it was FM 2030 that actually gave it, it his, the, the current definition of transhumanism. And the reason I asked that is just because of your last discussion around the two-party system, uh, FM 2030 was a futurist and he, he claimed that in the future The We would still be in a two-party system, but it wouldn't be, you know, political parties. It would be all around the people. It would be technology, would be the politics. You know, he said that there would be two parties. You would have the upstreamers and the downstreamers. The upstreamers were the people that would accept technology moving forward in harmony with it, whereas the downstreamers would be more old fashioned, mechanical, you know, manual process, you know. And as funny as it seems, just by your definition, we've almost made t- FM 2030's future, but we didn't do it by calling them upstreamers and downstreamers, we've just done it by the actions of the political parties in place. Yep. No, I, 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 th- I think that makes a lot of sense. And one that isn't. So we've actually moved into the futurist, you know, it, society that FM was talking about, you know, eh, God, back in the seventies. You know, That's it,
1: fascinating
2: it's crazy when you when you look at it from that perspective because you gave the explanation that he gave fifty years ago. The only thing that's different are the labels.
1: And the fact that he was looking ahead and saying this is what the future holds, and now we're looking at society as it is and and actually seeing it come to fruition. Yeah. Um, yep. so- and, and I, I think if if nothing else that, that shows the value of uh the futurist perspective of looking forward and and anticipating what is to come and uh, what we can do to better situate ourselves to take advantage of that future. Because Uh, I I think unfortunately, a lot of times the future isn't stoppable. It's coming and it's uh, it's really just a matter of anticipating and preparing.
2: The thing that I would say is the future is already here. You know, we keep talking about the future as if it's far away, you know, I'm a transhuman, you're a, a specialist in artificial intelligence and large language models. The future isn't tomorrow, the future is now. And we just need to realize that we're living in it and how do we live in it properly? Absolutely.
1: All right, well, I, I think we could uh, talk about this all day. And now that you are permanent fixture of this podcast, uh, as exciting as it is, we, we will continue to have these conversations. So uh, I, uh, to all the, the listeners, everybody that's joining, um, thank you for the, the support over the past year. I'm really looking forward to uh, doing a deep dive and really getting into this next year and talking about some, some new and amazing stuff. So uh, with that, um, I guess uh, if, just to, to do one final plug, um, the the book is the, the Language of Deception, Weaponizing Next Generation AI. It is now available on Amazon. So uh, if you are interested in these topics, definitely go out and grab you a copy. Uh, with that, any final words, Lin?
2: Uh, absolutely. This has been an amazing way to close out 2023 and a beautiful way to start 2024. Again, thank you to ITSP Magazine and their welcome. Thank you, Hutch, for giving me the opportunity and the invitation. I'm greatly, greatly honored to be a part of this and I look forward to putting out some amazing content with you and having some some just mind blowing conversations.
1: Awesome, yeah, same. All right, well with that, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Uh, We will see you guys uh, in 2024. Yep, all the things.
0: All right, see you guys next year. Cheers. Peace. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybercognition Podcast with Hutch, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.